You know, some days are locked in your memory. I remember real well the morning of January 28, 1986. Started out as a normal morning for me. We're back in our old location in South Wichita, and I had hospital visits to make. So I started out that morning at Via, what we call Via Christi St. Joseph today. And when I walked in, I saw everybody cluster around television. Well, I wasn't really surprised at that because there was a shuttle launch that morning. But what would have been surprising about that is by that point, we'd sent so many shuttles into outer space, it kind of got to be a done, you know, an ordinary thing. Well, there's another reason why everybody would have been clustered around the video that day. Because, because the shuttles had been sent up so much and people had gotten accustomed to it, NASA had the idea that they would send a teacher into outer space. And a long process had been... Uh, developed in order to select a teacher who would train like any other astronaut and go into outer space. And her name was Kristen McAuliffe. And that morning, it wasn't just in St. Joseph Hospital that everyone was clustered around televisions. There were television sets brought into to classrooms and, and school kids all over the country were watching the launch that morning. But even that wasn't why everybody was clustered around the television. In a few seconds, I learned why, and it was tragic. In fact, I learned the moment I looked up at the screen and I saw what would have normally been a single trail of vapor or smoke of, of a shuttle launch because there was a place where it, it broke apart and there were, there were two sections of smoke. And I knew at that moment that there had been a disaster, and indeed there had been. The Challenger had exploded 73 seconds after launch, killing all seven of the astronauts, including Krista McAuliffe, and that is why everybody was standing there watching the screen. NASA had been warned not to do that. <laughs> there was a part, there was a, a rubber seal, a, an O-ring, a giant rubber O-ring that was meant to seal off the sections of the solid rocket boosters. And Morton Thiokol, the company that had made the O-rings, had been concerned about launches that happened below a certain temperature. In fact, they were really only assured that the launch would work at 53 degrees, I believe. And the weather in Florida had been very cold, unseasonably cold. The shuttle had been scheduled to launch on January the 22nd, but now there were six days of delay, and NASA was getting nervous and embarrassed about it because, after all, everybody was looking to see what it was going to be like for this teacher to go into space. So the night before the launch... NASA was on a conference call with Morton Thiokol, the engineers who have made the O-rings, because they were saying, you shouldn't do this launch. I mean, it looks like the temperature could be somewhere around freezing. Actually, it was below freezing. And one of the, one of the engineers in particular, Alan McDonald, said, you shouldn't do this. There's no way in the world. This is really dangerous. You should not send the shuttle up in this temperature. We're not sure that the O-rings will seal off. It may allow, fuel, may allow ignited fuel to escape and, and threaten the craft. But NASA got angry, and they said, hey, we're, we're not concerned that this is going to happen. You guys are delaying our launch based on something that's never going to happen in a million years. And so NASA demanded that the responsible Morton Thiokol representative sign off on the launch. Well, that would have been Alan McDonald, but he refused to sign. And so his boss signed in his place, and the rest, as we know, is all tragic history. Later, when Alan McDonald was talking about what happened with the shuttle launch, and it was very clear that it was the failure of the O-rings because of the low temperature that morning, McDonald said that NASA fell victim to what we would call the oldest sin, pride, hubris. 
they hadn't had any problems. I mean, they had been able to deal with anything that came up. I mean, actually, they went and got the Apollo 13 astronauts halfway in the space when they were in trouble. So NASA was definitely not going to be defeated by a rubber O-ring. They were proud. It is the first sin. Long before Adam and Eve ever were in the Garden of Eden, Satan, who, Lucifer, who was the most beautiful of all the angels, decided that God shouldn't get all the glory and that he wanted to get glory. So that was the first time there was ever any sin against God, and it was pride. Thomas Aquinas, some of you have Catholic background or you have background studying uh, Christian history, and you know who Thomas Aquinas is. He said this. He said, pride is behind every sin. And I think he's right. That's really true. So here's the thing today. When we talk about pride and humility, we're talking about the biggest subject that we could possibly talk about. And the idea that in 25 or 30 minutes, I'm going to tell you what you should need to know about pride is almost laughable. It would be like if I dipped a cup in the Pacific Ocean and you asked me what's in the cup and I said Pacific Ocean. Well, from, a, from, from one point of view, just considering essentially what's in the cup, that would be a true statement. But you and I both know there's no way that a cup can contain the Pacific Ocean. Well, I am going to dip my cup in the Pacific Ocean today. And you can ask, what's in this sermon? Well, it's about pride and humility, but it's like, it, it's like saying this is just a cup of it. Because the story of the world is the story of pride and humility. Do you have a Bible in your lap or do you have a, a, an electronic device with the Bible in it? The story of the Bible is pride and humility. So certainly today, there's no way in the world that I can tell you everything that you need to know. But let me give you what I believe is the purest definition in the Bible of what pride is and why it's so devastating. In Psalm chapter 10 of the fourth verse, the Bible said, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God. Well, who does not seek God? The wicked. Well, who are the wicked? They are the people that don't look for God, don't have any room for God in their lives. Now, here's the second statement that's so big. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now, guys, pride can wear many faces. It can wear the face of arrogance. It can wear the face of stubbornness. It can wear the face of an inflated self-ego. But when you get right down to it, those two words, no room, give us a better picture of pride than any other words, perhaps. Because see, here's the thing. A person who is proud before God has no room for God. A, a person who is proud may have no room to listen to someone else's opinion. A person who is proud may have no room for someone else's feelings. I mean, if, if you look at what's breaking up American homes today, and we've been told for a long time that 50% of marriages end in divorce, but I promise you, if you would let me do kind of a background check on why those couples fell apart, it wouldn't be long before we would go back to someone, if not both people's pride. There, there was a place where people just didn't have room. Room for someone else's feelings, room for someone else's thoughts. And the problem with pride is that pride always ends badly. I mean, in Proverbs, we are told that pride goes before a fall. So in other words, anytime we see pride, we're going to see a problem. We're going to see a disaster. And in America, we are prouder than we've ever been before. We just had high school graduations in Wichita and Andover and surrounding areas. When the, the Gallup Institute years ago began asking seniors various questions about life. And one of the questions that Gallup asked high school seniors is, are you a very important person? Do you know in 1950, only 12% of high school seniors said, yes, I am a very important person. By 2005, 80% of high school seniors said, I am a very important person. 
Now, guys, for all of us who are parents and grandparents, I mean, we need to stop to realize that we may be raising a whole generation of narcissists. Because here is the thing. There's a great difference between being loved unconditionally and being important. Important means you make a difference in life. I would argue that there are very few high school seniors who are important yet. They should all be loved unconditionally, but they may not be important. In fact, most likely they are not yet. One of the wisest things that we parents can do for our kids is to tell them that they are indeed loved unconditionally, but it is up to them to go out and be someone special. They're not automatically special because they are our children. Special in the sense of loved, but not special in the sense of achievement. And I know that runs counterculture to where we are here in the United States, but remember, this is a series about character. Last week when I introduced the series, I shared with you that my HR friend told me this. He said, you can fix almost any problem with an employee if the problem is not attached to his character. But he said, if the problem is attached to the character, then the cure rate drops very low. Well, this is a series about character. And if we want to talk about what character is, character is that internal set point of values. See, in America today, we have an internal sliding scale of values, and that is why we're dealing with character issues. Now, here's the thing. Like, like, like Rich was saying, if the problem is not attached to character, you can fix anything. Well, for all of us, even people of high character, we're going to have problems from time to time. But when you see someone with character who has a problem, what is it that we always say about the person? They're, out, they're acting out of character. And so what we're talking about in this series is how do we build that internal character in our lives that, that makes us a person of great value. And today, we're going to be talking about pride and humility because, as I said a moment ago, it is an issue. And not just with high school seniors. When Americans were asked recently, are you in the top 1% of wage earners, 19% of Americans said, yes, I am in the top 1%. Now, let's go over that one more time. 19% of Americans say they're in the top 1% of wage earners. Did I say we're not very good at math, too? That's right. Americans rank 25th in the world in math, but we think we're all very good in math, according to surveys. As one writer said, we're very good at thinking we're very good at math. <laughs> Americans were asked, are you a genius? Two out of five Americans said yes. <laughs> and nearly half of all men... <laughs> Yeah. Problem with that is that MENSA, the genius organization that measures genius, say that only the top 1%, maybe at most top 2%, are actually geniuses. So what we learn from that is half of all men think they're one in 100. So pride's a problem. And here's the deal. It's a problem in you, and it's a problem in me. We all are going to have to deal with pride. You know, one of the things that I've watched God do in my life is God has a way of deflating me when I get full of myself. Do any of you have experience like that? It's almost like God is like, okay, Mark, I'm just going to put my pen to your balloon. I remember, I don't know why this one comes to mind, but when New Spring was a lot smaller and we didn't have a lot of the buildings that we have today, my office was over here. And um, I had a lot more one-on-one -on -one contact with our congregation. And there was a girl about 12 years old who was going to be baptized. And so one Saturday morning, her dad brought her in to talk to me to make sure she understood about baptism. And he parked his SUV. I saw them come in. Dad was dressed like Saturday morning, jeans and T-shirt. His little 12-year-old girl came in. I explained baptism to her. She picked it up real quick. The only thing was she kept coughing and sneezing. And so I said to her dad, 
in the attempt to help him, I said, you know, there's, she's got this stuff going around. And I said, a lot of people have talked to me about it, and they keep telling me this is what's working best. You might want to try that with your daughter. He thanked me very politely, assured me he would do it. A few weeks later, I learned he is the top neurosurgeon in Wichita. <laughs> We've been friends for a lot of years, and he lets me you know, have him on my speed dial. But every time I call him, I think, oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. This is a series called Backstage. We're talking about character. And I want to begin by asking you this question. And you don't need to answer me, and you don't need to answer your wife or husband on this one. Just, just, just think about this in your heart and mind. Are you a proud person? Are you a proud person? Would you know the difference? In, in Proverbs chapter 22 in the fourth verse, there's an interesting statement. It says, true humility and the fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. Now, the thing that jumps off the page to me is true humility. Now, I want to tell you something. If you've ever, you know, if you grew up in church like I did, I need to let you know, just warning, this is not going to be the stereotypical sermon on pride and humility. Because I am interested in what that first two Words of that statement say, true humility. Because what it tells me is some things that may pass for humility aren't really humility. And it also leads me to understand that some things that may pass for pride aren't really pride. See, we could look at somebody and say, wow, isn't he humble? But he may be full of pride. On the other hand, you could look at somebody and say, I think that person's full of pride. And that person could be very humble. So the question that I want to pose for you today is, what is really humility, and what is pride? To help us understand, I want to introduce you to a couple of Bible characters. They live contemporaneously, and their stories actually interrelate with each other. But I want, I want to show you the first time we really get to meet them, and I want to ask you a question. Would you call this person proud, or would you call this person humble? Their names are Saul and David, and they are the first two kings of Israel. Here's the first time we meet Saul. Um, God has made him king, and they're having the coronation ceremony. The only problem is nobody can find him. They're looking for this new king. Everybody's wanting to see their new king. Read with me. This is 1 Samuel 10, verse 22. Where is he? Everybody wants to know where he is. He is hiding among the baggage. So they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. So that's the first time we meet Saul. God's made him king. They're going to have a coronation, big party. Where is he? He's over hiding among the baggage. He's too embarrassed to be found. Now let's meet David the first time we get to know him. David is the eighth son of eight kids. He's not in the military. Somebody has to stay home and watch the sheep. His older seven brothers, all big military types. In those days, families had the responsibility of feeding their kids who were in the military so David's daddy, Jesse, says to him, hey, I want you to go find your brothers who are in the military, find their encampment, and I want you to take these 10 bags of cheese. So David goes down there, and he discovers something that's been going on for several days. There's this nine-foot-tall gargantuan Philistine named Goliath that comes out and flips off God in Israel every day. And he basically says to them, there's no sense in us all getting bloody with carnage and fighting. Just send your best man out, and we'll go mano a mano. And, and if I win, my whole side wins. And if your guy wins, your whole side wins. Well, Goliath knows nobody's going to take him on. It's just to embarrass Israel. 
And it's to make, and you know, all this guy's he's spewing out this invective against Israel and Israel's God, and all the soldiers are hiding in tents. Well, along comes this teenage kid with 10 bags of cheese, and he hears this Philistine, and he's saying, I don't think you ought to be able to get by with that. So David says to one of the soldiers, Well, what happens to the guy that beats this Philistine? They say, Oh, he gets a Ferrari and a BMW and a condo on the beach. I mean, not really, but I mean, it was sort of like that. Gets to marry the king's daughter. Now, what does this kid have any business? I mean, a teenage kid. He does not, doesn't even bring a spear or sword or anything. You know, but it gets even more serious than that because David says, you know, he eventually says this to the king. Read this with me. 1 Samuel 17, 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Now, help me. We just met Saul and we just met David. When they went to find Saul, he's hiding among the baggage. I'm nobody. And the first time we meet David, he's going up to the king, teenage kid, said, hey, don't worry about this guy. I'll go take him. I'll take him on. You know what? You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, that's Saul, man. He is a humble guy. He's so embarrassed. He won't even, he won't even come out and be discovered. I'm thinking about David. What a bratty kid. And yet, we would be exactly wrong, wouldn't we? Because Saul was one of the most arrogant men in the Bible, and David was one of the most humble men in the Bible. If you want to read God's impression of these two men, you can read about him in a sermon Paul preached in Acts 13, verse 22. Paul said, but God removed Saul, the guy that seemed to be humble, and replaced him with David. I go fight that giant. A man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. With the time I have left today, I want to preach to you what, as I said a few moments ago, is a very non-stereotypical sermon about pride and humility. But I believe when I get through, our cup of the Pacific is going to be something that's going to be valuable to us. Here, here's the first of three lessons I want to share with you. Insecurity isn't humility. See, when Saul was hiding among the baggage, that wasn't true humility. It was insecurity. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time talking about insecurity. Back in 1993, I did a series on insecurity that lasted 26 weeks. I can't believe I preached 26 weeks on insecurity. But let me just say some things quickly about insecurity. Insecurity may sound like pride. I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. Uh, you know, I, you know and you give a, an insecure person a compliment. No, I'm no good. I can't do anything. But here's the problem with insecurity. It's not real true humility. It is a sense of three things. And you always discover three things in an insecure person. Number one, there will be inferiority. They will have that feeling that I don't deserve this. I'm not good. I don't belong here. And it's true that we don't deserve the good things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the problem with it is their sense of inferiority leads them then, number two, to blame somebody else. If you've ever dealt with an insecure person, they will communicate a sense of, yeah, I'm not worthy, but it's somebody's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's this person. You know what? An insecure person will always have somebody to blame. If you're ever dealing with an insecure person, you'll discover there's always a bad person. There's always a bad guy. There's always a bad gal. So there's inferiority, blame, and then clutching or grasping. An insecure person will feel like he or she doesn't deserve opportunities. If one ever comes along, they will do anything they can to grasp that, to hold that. And that's what makes them such a terrorist. 
And that's what happened with Saul. He knew that he was not worthy to be king. God had given him something, an opportunity that he did not deserve. But instead of humbling himself before God, he clutched and grasped after that. Anything that seemed to threaten someone touching his kingdom, and most of the time it wasn't even realistic, he would do all kinds of harm to those people because he didn't want to let go of his kingdom. By contrast, a secure person doesn't do that. When a person is secure, they can afford to humble themselves because they are secure in their own skin. They're comfortable in their own skin. The greatest example of this will always be Jesus Christ. When you look at him, you always see who he is. He is God in flesh, and yet he is always humbling himself to serve the lowest and the least remembered people in, in his world. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. They say this was probably one of the first worship songs in the early church. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says, Who being in the very nature of God? Well, that's as high a title as you can get. That's much bigger than president or even king. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, Jesus, when he came to earth, he knew he was God. I mean, he could have he come to earth and said, okay, I want everybody here to treat me like I am God visiting earth. I don't want to live in the Middle East. I want to live on the French Riviera, and I want to live on the beach and lie in a hammock and sip lemonade. Jesus did not see something like that to be grasped after. Look at this. But he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Insecure people cannot humble themselves. They have to grasp for what they know they didn't deserve. Secure people can afford to humble themselves. Now, I want to give you a similar scripture to the one I just read you about, about Jesus, but I want us to slow down on this one. So I'm going to turn around, and I want to look at the screens, and I want to walk you through what is a beautiful picture of a person very secure in their own skin being able to humble themselves. So here we go. And, man, I'm getting thin back here. <laughs> now that's what you're going to look at, right? But that's okay, I'm comfortable in skin. So, okay. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Well, I mean, he, he came to earth and humbled himself, but I mean, we're getting ready now for Jesus to make the transition to going back to who he was. Somehow, God at this moment had already put everything under Jesus, everything that ever was. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was go, uh, about to go. Now, look at the verse 4. What's the first word of verse 4? So. What does so mean? It means based on what we just previously read. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Do you get that? God put everything under him. He was the most important person in the universe. He had come from God. He was going back to God. He knew that. So he humbled himself and he washed the disciples' feet. In America today, we're largely informed by entertainment. And you know there are stereotypes in entertainment when you think about it. When you see a CEO presented, oftentimes they're presented as arrogant. When you see a street person, they're presented as humble. But the truth of the matter is, I have known street people who were humble, but I've also known street people who were arrogant. 
In fact, I've known street people who were street people because of their stubbornness and arrogance. It is true that some CEOs are arrogant, but I have known CEOs who were very humble, and they got their position because they, were humble, they humbled themselves and supported the cause. So that's the first thing I want us to understand. Insecurity isn't necessarily humility. It may sound like it, but when you peel back the layers, you'll discover somebody who is blaming someone else and is always grasping or reaching, terrified that someone is going to steal what they know they don't deserve. Now let's flip that coin. Number two, notice that confidence isn't necessarily pride. I mean, you hear David when he said, hey, don't worry about this giant, I'll go find him. There is confidence in David's voice, and yet we already know from what we saw in the Bible that David is not a proud person. So while insecurity may not necessarily be humility, confidence may not necessarily be pride, and it's not if three things are present. Well, the, let's just look at the story, and, and we'll, we'll see what those three things were. The first, um, David now has come there and said he would, he would take care of business. But when David's oldest brother, I never know how to say his name. Is it Eliab or Eliab? Doesn't matter. He's not important. Every time we hear him, he's a screw-up. So, <laughs> and, and isn't it true nobody can put you down like your older brother or oldest sister? When David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking with the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your... Well, he didn't. Hey, listen, guys, this is not about our sermon today, but I'm about to help a lot of people here or watching on television or watching online or in the North Auditorium. I'm about to help a lot of people. Have you ever been accused of the last motive you would possibly have? You know what's going on? You were hearing what that person would do if they were in your shoes. Just check it out. See, here's the thing. If Eliab had gone up to Saul and said, I'll fight this guy, he would have been proud. So Eliab was accusing David of what he would do if he had said what David said. But notice David's, I mean, and I love this too. He said, I know about your pride and deceit. Look at this. He said, you just want to see the battle. Well, there wasn't much battle going on. All these soldiers were hiding in their tents from Goliath, so David didn't see much battle. But David, look at that. David could have, he could have shot back against any of those. He could have said, well, I watch a lot of sheep, and my dad told me to come down here, and I'm not proud, and I'm not, you know, here's the thing. Don't waste your time defending yourself against somebody it wouldn't matter with anyway. Notice how David just responded with this. He said, is there not a cause? A confident person is not a proud person if he or she serves a cause bigger than they are. It's okay to be confident as long as, and in fact, that is one of the pure definitions of humility. It is being able to serve a cause bigger than yourself. A proud person, there is no cause bigger than themselves. They are the cause. I had the privilege two or three years ago of being in a little meeting room over in Arkansas with like nine or 10 other pastors of very large churches around the country and a couple of CEOs. One was Donnie Smith, who was CEO of Tyson. The second guy was CEO of a really, really huge company, one of the biggest corporations in the world. And the guy, the other guy, who I won't name, he's not with that corporation anymore, but he came in in a business suit, really tailored suit, which is fine, it's what I expected. 
But the interesting thing is, I had hoped to learn about their internal culture, but most of the time he spent telling us about himself, about the, the political leaders he had served under, and his impression of this and his impression of that. Like I said, he's not with that corporation anymore. But Donnie Smith blew me away. I had heard the next guy who's going to come in is the CEO of Tyson. Well, you know Tyson, and we, we think about them being chicken company, but you, don't, you might not realize he's the biggest exporter of beef in the United States. They do chicken, beef, pork, and toppings. But Donnie Smith walked in. Instead of walking in in a suit, he walked in in khaki pants, a work shirt with a white cotton field, and stenciled in red thread was the word Donnie. I mean, he looked like anybody who could have been on the line. Now, Donnie Smith graduated from college in 1980. He worked for Tyson for 29 years before he became their CEO. And in that process, Donnie Smith did just about everything you can do for Tyson. But it excited me when he began to talk about their internal culture. And this guy sitting there in a work outfit said this, said this to me about Tyson. He said, you know, we hire these you know, vice presidents for Stanford Business School and Harvard. He said, it doesn't matter what position you're hired to at Tyson. He said, we're going to have you doing everything that we do at Tyson. He said, these VPs that come from Ivy League schools, we'll have them staying in a dormitory and getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go out and vaccinate pullets. What he was telling me is our internal culture at Tyson is this. We want everybody who works for us to know they are not the cause. They serve a cause bigger than themselves. That's humility. Number two, the second thing that a confident person can have when it's not pride. Let's look at um, now Saul talking to David. He said, Saul is saying to David, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're just a boy. He's been a man of youth. David persisted. Now, work with me here. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. That's serious. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do this to this pagan Philistine too. He said, I've been through the lions and bears and ready to get the giants. He went through the whole NFC. <laughs> I watch too much football. Because, look at this, he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and bear will rescue me from the Philistine. When I was a kid in Sunday school and I would listen to teachers tell this story about David telling Saul about the lion and the bear, I always figured that David was trying to prove he had been successful. But notice that David is not telling Saul how he intends to go after Goliath. He went after the lion and the bear by with a club and by grabbing them and beating them to death. He went after Goliath with a slingshot. So he's not saying, this is how I intend to do it. What, what he's saying to Saul is, sir, you understand, I am a shepherd. I think God wants my sheep to be safe. If someone comes out to threaten them, I deal with that person and God helps me. You are not a proud person as long as you remember that everything you have comes from God, every ability you have comes from God, every opportunity you have comes from God. You can be confident, you can go after any circumstance, you can take on any challenge that life brings to you as long as you remember that God is the one who gets the glory.
And you know, you'll find this every once in a while. You'll find somebody, whether we're talking about a parent or a teacher or a leader or a CEO or a lead partner or something, you'll find somebody that's very courageous and very confident. Oftentimes, that person's not proud if they're a follower of Jesus Christ and they're willing to lay all the trophies at his feet. Okay, confidence isn't necessarily pride. Let me give you a third way to look at this. The difference between a secure person and an insecure person will often be manifested in this. And we've already talked about the insecure person. If an insecure person gets an opportunity, let's say they get a job or they get a position or a title or they marry someone they don't feel like they're outside their league. An insecure person will, will get overly protective of that and they're terrified that they're going to lose what they did not deserve. And if they get an opportunity, they'll be toxic about it. A secure person, on the other hand, from time to time will actually have opportunities taken away. Um, a job that they earned will go to somebody else. Somebody will stab them in the back. Or they'll just have a crisis. But here's what you'll notice about a secure person. A secure person knows that God is in charge and that if this opportunity gets taken away, other opportunities will come. And so consequently, I don't have to freak out. If I lose something, God will bring something else along. I can be secure about it. It's the Abraham Lincoln thing when he failed in business, who said, I will study and prepare myself, and someday my time will come. Secure people don't freak when something like that happens. I'm just going to keep being faithful and do what I do. But here's what secure people, oh, this is so good. This is what secure people will do in the meantime. If an opportunity gets taken away from a secure person, they will always develop marketable skills that will make them more effective. In other words, if they lose an opportunity, they'll see that as a golden moment to develop themselves to get ready for the next challenge. Now, how does David kill Goliath? You know that story. But remember what David did. He was a shepherd. Well, I'm sure that being a shepherd is a boring job from time to time. You sit there and watch sheep. So what's he doing? He's taking out his slingshot. I mean, he's just knocking tin cans off the fence post. I mean, he gets so good, he can knock the left eye out of a gnat out at 40 paces. <laughs> so even though he's a shepherd and his brothers get to go be military, David is developing skills that will really make him a legend because that's exactly what he's going to do to deal with Goliath. He's going to put a rock right about in the middle of his forehead and knock him out and then cut his head off. And from that point on, David is going to be a legend the rest of his life. Let me give you one final thing, and I'll be through. The first lesson that we have is that insecurity is humility. The second one is that confidence isn't necessarily pride. And let me just close by saying this. Humility and pride affect outcomes. Listen, guys. We talked about honesty last week. So important. And all, if you'll think about this, all these character qualities interrelate. But if, if you're a humble person, that's what's going to tell your story. And if you're a proud person, that will be your story. Nothing writes your story like humility or pride. And nothing affects your outcomes. Let me show you why. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says God opposes, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, English just doesn't help us right there. Because the word opposed there is a military term, which means to set, it's like an army 
preparing for battle. <laughs> now, God is saying to me, Mark, if you're proud, I will dress for a fight, and I'll come and fight with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't handle that. I don't like opposition, but, I mean, I, you know, it's like God is saying, Mark, if, you're, if you get yourself full of yourself and, and you start thinking it's all about you and you're bigger than the cause, God is saying, I'll start putting on my gear and I'm going to come fight against you. If I'm talking to anybody today who's proud, and it could be stubbornness, it could be that you won't listen, it could be that you don't have room for your wife's feelings, it could be that you don't have room for a cause bigger than yourself, could I lovingly give you the, one of the most terrifying verses I've ever read in the Bible? In fact, when I read this, I thought, oh, Lord, I want to be humble. In Isaiah 2, verse 12, the Bible says, the Lord, all-powerful, has chosen a day when those who are proud and conceited will be brought down. You say, well, Mark, I do what I want to do. I, I mean, it's my world. I mean, I'm, it's all about me, and nothing, lightning hasn't struck me yet. You need to understand, God's got a red X on a day in his calendar, and he looks at that and says, on that day, he's going down. On that day, she's coming down. When I read that, ooh, I just said, God, please help me. But he's, think about this, because you think there's two signs of this. God is saying he, he sets himself in battle against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, people who are humble, he gives them what they don't deserve. You ever look at somebody in life and say, how did he get that job? You know, how did he get her? I don't know that this is the answer in every situation, but the Bible is just saying, look, God is saying, and he's being right up front about it so that we'll understand it. God is saying, I tilt the playing field in the advantage of somebody who is humble. I want to I make a turn here since I'm closing the message. And now I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk to somebody who's on the other side of the verse I read a moment ago, and I've been there. You got a little full of yourself, maybe. Or you got a little stubborn about something. And you've hit the wall. And you're down today. You, you know, it's interesting. I've had so many people come and talk to me at that moment. Because that's when they're ready to talk. And oftentimes people will sit, around for, sit across from me. And a guy especially will say, this is the lowest moment of my life. And you know when they tell me their story, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, no, this is the, one of the highest moments of your life. Because the Bible tells us that if we will humble ourselves, God will raise us up. If we lift ourselves up, God will bring us down. See, a lot of times we think it's a high moment in our lives, but if we're full of ourselves, it's really a low moment. But if you're here today and life has humbled you, could I lovingly give you some good news? It's not a bad thing to be humbled. Because if you get humble before God, well, I just want to read this to you and I'll be finished. This is, and this is Isaiah 57, 15 from the message. A message from the high and towering God. Whoa, that's big. Who lives in eternity, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy places. Well, I'm not surprised a bit about that. He is the high and holy God. He lives in high and holy places. But also, God said, I live one more place. But also with the low spirited and the spirit crushed. Is that you today? You say, Mark, life has just crushed my spirit. 
Well, here's what God says. What I do is I put a new spirit in them. See, his mercies are fresh every morning. If you've been humbled, you may not be in a weak position. You may be in a strong position because God's mercies will be new every morning. What I do is put a new spirit in them, and I get them up on their feet again. Strange, isn't it? So many people want to get to the place of feeling self-important, and God is saying, I dwell with the person who is humble. I dwell with the person whose spirit is crushed. I'll put a new spirit in them, and I'll pick them back up, and I'll put them on their feet again. I'll say one more thing. Please, could I go just about one more minute? Because I need to let you know this. Humility is the way that we, we go to heaven. Nobody can be proud in God's presence and go to heaven. Proud would take straight tail. But humility, humility is the understanding that we can't be good enough. There's nothing that we can do to earn heaven. That Jesus came and he died in our place and the blood that came out of his body paid for all of our sin. And if we come as bankrupt sinners, humble before Christ and ask God to forgive us, that God births us into his family and actually makes us his daughters and his sons and gives us the promise of heaven. You know, the weird thing about that is a lot of people can't humble themselves before God. You, you tell them the greatest news in the world is the gospel, that God will forgive anyone of anything and bring them into his family. You would think everybody would love that message, but there are a lot of human beings that say, no, nope, i got to do something. But if you can humble yourself, you can get into heaven. Hey, I'm, let me pray a prayer with you that calls out for that gift. And if you would like to join me, you can. I'll pray this really slowly, and then you can decide if you want to own the words. Ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself, but I believe you love me. Would you forgive me and make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, here's what I'd love for you to do, whether you're in the North Auditorium, South Auditorium. If you go to guest services, there's one by the South entrance, one by the North entrance. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and I got a gift for you. It's a DVD, a book I wrote, and a coupon for a new Bible. This will help you. I have a lot of answers because you can say, Mark, I just prayed. I'm not sure what happened to me. Please come get that. Thanks for being here this week. Next week, we'll go to another character study.